And hello everybody, it is Saturday night, September the 11th, year 2010. I'm Wong Hughes, and hope you're all doing well out there. Um, we are going to call Patricia here in a second, and have a traditional fun and games on Saturday night with Patricia. And we're going to say our prayer now, think about uh, the tragedy that happened nine years ago and let's do that now dear lord thank you so much for the blessings of the country thank you for us to look back upon what happened nine years ago bless the families uh the country everything that went through nine years ago let us Think about them, let us do anything we can to help them at this time. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name, Amen. Well, this is a traditional Saturday show, and I'm going to call Patricia, and we're going to go ahead and open up the phone line for fun and games. we got some features, we got Fibber McGee and Molly, and stuff like that there. Okay, here we go. In other words, old radio programs never die. <laughs> I know one that dies every Tuesday night. Well, that ain't what I mean. I mean, they're still out there, bouncing around in the air, waiting for somebody to tune them in again. And I'm the guy that can do it. What's our congressman's phone number? Why? Well, if there isn't a law against that, I'll help him write one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you change your mind when I get this baby working, Molly. We'll make a few more adjustments here. Get the king bolt tightened up a little bit. I'll be ready to try it. And... You want to buy a duck? No, I'm not interested in any poultry, bud. I'm trying to... Hey, who said that? Why, I don't know, McGee. There's nobody here for that. I'm going to turn off the radio, will you, Molly, while I work on this? Radio? Hey, the radio. It's working. You hear it, Molly? It works. Yes, listen. My goodness, it sounds like New Year's Eve, McGee. I wonder where that... Boy, oh, boy, I told you I could make it work, and... You nasty boy! McGee, that, that's Joe Taylor. Why, he used to be one Listen, of... Elsa, remember him? Remember him? Oh, yes. I used to love him. Part of time. Everybody wants to get into the yacht. My God. Tony Wan. <laughs> oh, McGee, that's Jimmy Durante. Oh, yeah, hi, Jimmy Durante. Boy, this is wonderful. Gee whiz, I can tune in any program I want. Hush a minute, hush. Let's listen to this one first. What year and hour are we listening to? I can't tell yet. The dates are all scrambled up on the dial here, but I can fix that. And my name, darling, is Lula Bankhead. Did you hear that? I got Congress, Senator Bankhead. No, no, that's. Got a deep voice on him, hasn't he? No, McGee, that was. This is exciting, McGee. Can you tune in just any program you want to hear? Anything back to 1926. That's when the first big network started. NBC in 1926. Oh? That's when we bought this old super heterodyne, remember? Oh, do I remember. Yeah. <laughs> you lugged this thing home, strung about 200 feet of aerial around the roof, plugged it in, turned it on, and blew out fuses that we didn't even know we had. Yeah, but remember the first program we ever heard on it? There was a, a band out, out in Kansas City. Oh, yes, the Nighthawks. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Coon Sanders and their Kansas City Nighthawks. Yeah. Wait till I tune this. The year 1920. 
Thanks. Yeah. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Pat Kelly greeting you from Kansas City. NBC is presenting the Coon Sanders Nighthawks Orchestra. Oh, that's it, McGee. That's them. Relax and enjoy yourselves now while the Coon Sanders Nighthawks go to work on some of these days. <laughs> I told you this baby would work, kiddo. <laughs> boy, oh boy, is this ever jazzy. Wonderful. That's great. Terrific. Brings back a lot of memories, too. Remember the night we put this radio out on the front porch and threw a block party for the neighbors? Oh, wasn't that fun? <laughs> we put up ropes and danced in the street. You did a pretty sharp Charleston, too. Yeah, I'd have done even better if the street had been paved. Gravel kept getting in my shoes. I had a new dress for that night, remember? <laughs> it was trimmed with monkey fur and had a hemline just below my knees. That must have been around uh, 1928, wasn't it? Yeah, that's when it was, around election time. Big argument broke out about Al Smith and Hoover. Yes, and you tried to explain to me which one would make the best president. Only you weren't sure yourself, and... Wait, listen. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Amos and Andy would like to say a few words to their listeners. Listen, Amos, you don't know politics like I do. Uh, tell me this, though. Uh, why can't they have a Democrat and a Republican president at the same time? Let Hoover be president for one week and Al Smith be president for next week, you see. Ain't no use to have no hard feelings. Amos, the president of the country, don't have nothing to do now. The trouble with that is the Republican would get everything messed up for the Democrats and vice versa. And what? Vice versa. He ain't running, is he? Who ain't running? Bryce Vizzes. 
I didn't say Bryce Visser. I said Vice Visser. Is he a Democrat or a Republican? Uh-oh. Listen, Amos, the farm situation. You take the hogan McGarry bill. Take it where? Take it anywhere. What is I going to do with it? That is the question. It was vetoed. It was? And not only that, the farmers are so mad about the hogan McGarry bill being vetoed that they are liable to elect the candidate for the vice president's president. Well, what do Coolidge say about all this? He do not choose. Maybe his wife made him stop doing that. The thing we has got to do, Amos, is to make up our minds if we is going to be Republican or Democrat. I believe I'll be a Democrat. But I'm going to be a Republican. You go ahead, be a Democrat. You is crazy. You was all right, ain't you? Certainly I was all right. Then I'm glad I was crazy. You know, that's the clearest explanation I've ever heard, McGee. Well, that's about the way I explained it to you at the time, Molly. Them guys just simplified it a little. And... Tune in some more. Go ahead. Get some music. Okay. Remember the music appreciation hour? Oh, Spike Jones, sure. <laughs> Let me see if I can get that. I'd like to hear that. No, no, that was Walter Damrod, McGee. Watch your language. You know, he always used to open up with... Good morning, my dear children. I've had no chance to call, so if it's not too late, let me wish you a happy new year. And may it bring you lots of music. And a greater and greater affection for it, so that you really become music lovers. Hey, you do a good imitation, Molly. Sounded just like... Oh, that was him. I didn't realize you were tuning the set yourself, and you could... Oh, listen. Everybody, and let's say hello to the star of the show. Hello, Patricia. Here is the twinkle over here. <laughs> Hi, Walden. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How about you? I'm doing fine. You had a busy week, yes? <laughs> had a busy week. I'm uh, I'm listening to new stuff, so that's always interesting. And uh, you know. I'm Keep myself occupied here and there and everywhere, you know. Um, busy helping Frank, busy helping this person, busy helping that project, and uh, and you know, looking at my bank account, saying, "Hmm, wonder why he doesn't go up." <laughs> <laughs> I think you have an awful lot of people out here who understand what you're saying. <laughs> That's funny. Um, you're you're a good person, Malden. <laughs> we have a whole bunch of stuff for tonight. Stop! Are you, are stop, you ready? Stop! 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 Oh, you've got something to say. No, I'm just, I'm just repeating the secret word. Oh, stop! I thought you said stop. You can turn me up one more notch. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's funny. No, that's okay. I'll, I'll turn me up. But it's really fine. Number right. four is good. Um, stop. No. Stop! Stop! Yeah, stop. 
yourself? Okay, S-T-U-S-F. We have loads of that for tonight. And number one on the list, five words. Number one, it's a, it's a little clip I'm going to play. Number two, yeah. No, number one is dial early and avoid the rush. Oh. Yes, if you're going to call in you. tonight. You can call 972-889-TALK. No. No. I don't, don't do that. If you did that, you won't be on the show, everybody. You're really, that's not fair. Okay. He's really frisky tonight. We're going to have a hard time <laughs> controlling him tonight. Number is 714-545-2071. You have that memorized by now? I do, but I'll write it down just in case. <laughs> I do. It's here. Me too. Okay. I'll write down just in case. Um, if you are a first-time caller, you automatically get a CD with your favorite shows or shows of your choice, plus a membership card in the Walpat Fan Club that was founded by Lucy in New York. Thank you, Lucy. Oh, my mom mailed the mailed stuff to you yesterday. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Lucy is president. Walden is what? I'm just, you know, I'm just a hand on deck. You're a vice president. Walden appointed himself as number two on the list, and he is vice president of his own club. And I'm going to say that every single week. <laughs> you know what? You know what Patricia theme song everybody is called till the end of time. Till the end of time. There you go. <laughs> this is this is good. So for starters, Walden and I are planning Christmas stuff for this year. Yes. We started, we started, we started late. We started on September the 8th, planning for Christmas. Yes, um, which for Walden begins next week. <laughs> Walden gets more Christmas out of a year than any other person in the universe. It does not even have to be in California. It doesn't have to be in this country. He gets more out of Christmas and his birthdays. He gets two weeks out of a birthday. But Christmas, look out. He's uh... going to start celebrating Christmas in November. Actually, and that's true, and actually, we're, we're planning now. And we're planning now. It's going to take a, a bit of planning because we've got some special stuff we'd like to do this year. A little bit different, and I think it's going to be fun. I hope we can pull it off because we will be with you on Christmas Eve. We will be with you on Christmas Day. We will be with you on New Year's Eve. And New Year's Day. And New Year's Day. Now that's we're going to be um, Patricia and I are going to be on the Rose Bowl float on New Year's Day, so it's going to be remarkable how we do the broadcast. But you know, <laughs> this is going to float my boat, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think so. I ha- where would I have to be? I could do this vicariously. You could carry a picture of me. Patricia <laughs> and I are on the float. You know, by the way, how much it costs? There's a good quiz question. Does anybody know how much it costs to put, put a float into the Rose Bowl float? Parade. A, a float, like enter a float? Uh-huh. Just the entry fee or Just the, the, the whole b- Megillah? The, like whole, the, whole, the whole Megillah. Wow. And the reason why I know that, um, our local line club puts one together every year. Uh-huh. So if you see it, um, we're, we're, we help raise money for that. So that's why I know. $60,000. More. Oh, that's not enough. But you're, you're, you're not too far off, though. I think 75. I was too low. It's 80 grand. I was close. Yeah, you were awesome. I was close, yeah. and I didn't even have any Rose Bowl experience. I know. 
Boy, I don't even watch the thing. It's too early in the morning. It's, <laughs> it's associated with an S word. <laughs> <laughs> but it was there before the S word. Well, that's true. That's true. Um, for our listeners who are tuning in for this nonsense, an S word is anything that has to do with sports. Which Patricia is one of the biggest uh, su- supporters of, if you haven't, if you haven't noticed. You know. Yes. Uh, oh, absolutely. Football, baseball, the whole Magilla. Do the whole thing. I know what those sticks are at the end of the field. I'm, I'm ahead of the game here. Right? Uh-huh. You're good. Right. You're good. Well, did you did you have something to do before I did my list here? You are... Uh, Mine's just whatever I feel like dropping it in. So why don't you turn it loose and we'll, we'll get if the audience jumps right in right away, real good. If they don't, I have this little, little surprise for everybody. Oh, cool. This is another one. Dial early. It is early. 714-545-2071. I'm going to toss out two trivia questions off the bat. Now, if you get an answer anywhere through the night, you win a CD. All I need is one correct answer to trivia questions. And if you don't like these questions, we have lots more. Sidekicks of show's main character. We did such a great time with the sidekicks over the last two weeks. Walden picked dogs this time. Well, actually, I picked a dog, and he added a dog. A dog named Bullet. Who did Bullet belong to? And a dog named Sandy. Who did the dog named Sandy belong to? Uh-huh. 714-545-2071. The dogs are Bullet and Sandy. Who did they belong to? Also, oh, this is good. We've got some good, fun bits of history. I've got advertising from 1941 and 1952. I did it right this time um, because those are where our fibber shows are from tonight. And I still have the Los Angeles Times article from 1894, and I will tell people how to bake a cake in a coal-fired oven. Actually, I guess it's a, it's a wood-fired oven. Um, and there are very special things that you have to do with that <laughs> in order to make a cake and uh, control the heat. It, it will really shake you up to know that people actually did this. They actually made cakes with this kind of equipment. Amazing. So we, we do have um, trivia all night long. If you call and let us know you're listening, we're going to be really happy campers. I have um, Walden's doom. I have Walden's question for tonight. It's just one question. And then later on, I have a list of questions that I'm going to go through with him, and he may need your help on some of these. Um, some of them are pretty brutal. I know you're going to get some of them, but there are a couple that I think you're going to scratch your head and say, mm, I missed that somewhere along the line. I have a trivia question from last week. Oh, okay. Is it for me? I hope not. No. Because you know the answer already. Oh, good. Oh, could I have it? Well, you can give it out. No, go ahead. Uh, for a CD, can you tell us how many callers we had last Saturday night? Oh, these are individual callers, yeah. not not numbers of phone calls, and um, no, these were, these were actually individual callers. Uh-huh. We had a picnic last week, and we're expecting a picnic tonight. We're all prepared for a picnic of people tonight. 714-545-2071. 
call and say hi. If you're a newcomer to our family, you automatically get a CD. If you answer a trivia question, you get a CD. You cannot lose. You just cannot lose. And all those questions. So I have a theme for tonight. And? And the theme has to do with saving pennies, saving dollars, saving money. Because people during the Depression and World War II did a magnificent job of making things last. They just lasted forever. Um, there, there was uh, um, what they call propaganda. I think it was kind of patriotic rather than propaganda, but um, it's the correct term to say propaganda. There were posters that asked people to use it up, wear it out, make it do. Those were the three messages on posters that went all over the place because the goods and products were being shipped overseas to the troops. And there was one poster that said, sew for victory, S-E-W, like sewing clothes and sew at home. Um, so there were a lot of things that people did during that period that certainly do not translate over to our time. Uh, we live in a disposable society. If it starts wearing out or we don't like it anymore, we just toss it in the dumpster. But I thought you and I were still in 1942, though. Where are we? Well, we are. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, thought, I never grew up. Yeah, I know. Okay. So we, we were never born. <laughs> we're in 1942. We missed out on something. That's true. Um, but anyway, this was triggered by an article that Underscore Bill from the chat room sent to me about the kinds of little devices that people are being sold today mm -hmm. to save pennies and dollars. They're actually being charged dollars to save pennies. You know, it's, these are novelty items that probably have as much worth as um, a cup of dirt from the yard. But um, I'm, I mean, I'm not denigrating the products or anything, but some of them just make you sit back and want to scratch your head. You're paying 19.95 for what? <laughs> to save how many pennies a week? It just doesn't make sense sometimes. But that's what retailers are going in for because shoppers are not buying traditional items. So they are pressing and marketing with the, the thrust of money-saving devices which is a good, a, a good approach to selling products. So anyway, here we are just saving pennies. Um, it, it, the, the signs that went up during World War II that were similar to loose lips might sink ships, mm -hmm. and the word might was in there, by the way. Most people say loose lips sink ships, but it wasn't. It's a five word. Loose lips might sink ships, which wow. is not something I can say very quickly and more than twice in one minute. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. So I would like, I'll, I have a list of examples here of things that people did and um, even things that our buddies in old-time radio did. But I'm going to ask people to call in with money-saving things that people did during the Depression and during World War II that you either saw or heard about or perhaps even did yourself or had your family carried over after the war uh, practices and money-saving um, practices is, is a good word, ways that um, people follow the advice of using it up, wearing it out, and making it do. What did you do? What did they do? 714 545 2071 
we are waiting for the phones to ring, folks. Are you ready for my examples? Sure. I'm all, I'm all, I'm all ears. Okay. Take, give me an example of what you have heard about over time that people did during the war. Well, my, money. my mind was wandering and other things as you were saying. Uh, if, if they bought items, would they have saved money compared to today? Uh, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, I, 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 I think. I think some things what they would do is take uh, handy-downs and maybe reshape them into other products. Yes, they would. Yeah. Um, kids, <laughs> you know, the joke for for children growing up in years where there were several children in the family and clothing children was not an easy thing. Kids wound up with the hand-me-down clothes. Mm -hmm. uh, Norman Rockwell did a couple of pictures. One that is particularly endearing, with a little boy whose suit is just dragging over his shoes, and the the arms in the suit are down to his knees. And it's clear he was given a hand-me-down suit that he was going to have to grow into. But I want to say if they might take in the elastic of certain clothes, like a men's clothes, and if the wife was a good. Uh, good with her hand, maybe did she take that and make that, I don't know, a garter belt or something else. I'm not sure. I mean, I wonder if they did things like that. I don't know if there was any elastic yeah. during World War II. Don't know. Um, you know, everything rubber went into the war effort. Right. So I, I really don't know. But I do know that they took, well, Molly did that. Um, she took some clothes and was remaking and, and recutting them, uh, modernizing, taking existing clothes and giving them new sleeker looks or putting in shoulder pads, taking out shoulder pads, doing little things to clothes that would bring them up to speed in the fashion world but not have to go out and buy new clothes. So what was, While you were talking, this is what I was thinking about. Economically, what was more cost-efficient for people? To buy coal, uh, and what co it compares to the prices they made for coal, was that more expensive than, than how we normally heat our houses today? In terms I don't of know how it would compare to today, but there was, um, and I'm, I'm stretching my brain here. Yeah, you know, I don't know what cost more, <laughs> oil or coal back then. I'm, I don't really know. I mean... But there was one Fibber, McGee, and Molly show where they switched from one to the other. And I believe they switched from oil to coal because you and I talked about it being backwards. You know, people would normally go in the other direction, but they did it backwards because coal was more accessible. It was easier to have, and they were saving the fuel for the, for the tanks and the equipment and the guys overseas. Right. Um, you couldn't ship coal, but you could ship gasoline. Of course, or crude oil or whatever they, they I, um, sent I the, over. I think the classic thing that people did back then that we really don't do today, more people grew their own food food back then. That's on my list. Yeah. They grew gardens. They planted gardens, yes. And they did their own canning. Mm -hmm. I found out in my little hunt, oh, ooh, I have um, blue stamp, uh, not blue stamp, um, red stamp, and, yeah, what was the what was the other one? Blue uh, stamps, right? Uh, I think they're blue, but yeah, so racing points, red, right? Red points and um, and blue points. There were actually four. 
there were red points uh, and red stamps, mm -hmm. and there were green, brown, and blue stamps. Isn't that a hoot? That's something else. I never knew they that. They finally just gave up on the green and the brown, and they stuck with the red and blue exclusively because the green, brown, and blue stamps kind of overlapped with each other. But I did collect my, my stamp information for you tonight just in case you ask me, and I don't have to say, I don't know, one more time. Well, here's a I don't know question. Uh-oh. Of all the products during World War II that fashion, uh-huh. what's with the most scarce? The most scarce. I I would think butter. Okay. What do you say? You know the I answer, was, right? No, no. I was I was wondering about sugar. <laughs> I was wondering about sugar. I don't know. <laughs> I know sugar was scarce, but one of the things that happened with sugar was if women canned at home, if they preserved fruit and did canning at home, right? They got extra sugar in order to do this. Mm-hmm. Because they weren't stripping the shelves or taking food off the shelves. Got it. And it left more food for other people. So they, they got a larger ration. If they could prove that this is what they were doing with it, and I don't know how they did that, but they were allowed an extra allotment of sugar wow. month in order to do that. Wow. So I thought that was pretty interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah I come up with all of these great <laughs> I mean, I am so wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are. 714... Five four five two zero seven one. I think having Patricia with me have expanded her horizon because she knows I'm gonna ask the impossible question. So I she, know, she, I know you're a rainbow, Walden. Right, <laughs> you're a rainbow. <laughs> have to go through a storm to get to the rainbow. <laughs> so we have a dog named Bullet and a dog named Sandy. Who did the dogs belong to? All I need is one, and if you don't like those, we've got a million, million other questions. Did okay. you? Well, I know. Hey, let's, let's play off that a little bit here. Okay. When I was growing up, uh, we had two do main dogs. Mm -hmm. Two main dogs? Two, two, two dogs. And we had, we had uh, Pucky, because I could not pronounce Puppy at the time. Oh, okay. So, and, and the other one I had was called Thomas. So... Did you ever have a dog when you were growing up? My sister had a dog. And what was the dog's name? Stamp. S-C-A-M-P, because that's exactly what he was. He was an adorable little doggy, and he looked just like a scamp. <laughs> so that's uh, so there might be a topic. What's the names of your dogs when you were growing up as a kid? Do you have any dog stories? That's good. And if your dog is Sandy? <laughs> <laughs> Or bullet. <laughs> We'd like to hear about that too. That would be good. This is good. Okay, let me tell you about the the the, um, the things that people did. Are you ready? Ready. Okay, I, I've got a couple from our shows. In the December fifth, nineteen forty four, Fibber Mickey and Molly show, Fibber was going to press his own pants. You might remember that it cost something like. $24 to have him save 65 cents. That's right, yeah. Going to send them out to the cleaners to get pressed because it would cost 65 cents. Right. He broke a window, broke a lamp, broke the ironing board. He did the whole route, and it turned out that his pants were actually at the cleaners anyway. <laughs> but um, one of the things that he was going to do was to sandpaper the seat of his pants. Sandpapering took some of the shine out of old and worn fabric. Now, if a, if a 
person wore a suit, if a man wore a suit or a pair of slacks, and they had a shine to them, people knew immediately that they were very old pants. They were also increasingly fragile. Because, you, know, you could break through them at any point. But he was going to use sandpaper on them to rough up the fabric and take some of the shine out. So that's one of the examples of make it do. He was not going to go out and buy a new suit. They didn't have money. The fabric was, was um, not in great supply, which is why the skirts went up during the war. And um, so that's the way he was going to make do with the suit that he had. He was going to sandpaper the seat of his pants. I thought that was an interesting show. I go back to that periodically because I think it's one of the most endearing and telling shows in the entire wartime lineup of Fibber McGee and Molly. Very good. Love that show. Very good. All right. In another show, this is when he found the shoebox full of money. Do you remember that show we played about a month or maybe two months ago? I think I do, yes. He was coming home on the trolley, yes. and he went in the house, yes. and he had, instead of his shoes, he wound up with a shoebox full of money. His shoes, he had no idea where they were, but he was getting his shoes back from the shoemaker because he had had soles put on his shoes. Right. Now, people don't keep shoes to wear them out any longer. They look up in a magazine and see what styles are coming in this year, and there go the shoes, and in come the new ones. But people had heels put on their shoes. They had soles put on their shoes. And if it was just the soles that stopped before you got to the heels, they called them half-soles. So he had his shoes half-soled. You know, it didn't go for the full length of the shoe. Mm -hmm. And it was another... Uh, make it do and, you know, keep them in good repair. So he was getting his shoes fixed. He wasn't buying new ones. He was getting his shoes fixed. Molly darned socks. You and I talked about this the other day. Darning right. socks was a system for for anybody who, who um, nobody darns socks anymore. But there was actually a wide darning thread with a lot of strands in it that, people would use to weave back and forth and and actually make a basket weave with this thread to patch holes in socks and other garments as well, but primarily socks. And Molly used a darning egg. If anybody knows what a darning egg is, I want to know. I know what it is, so I'll know if you're telling me the truth. But if you know what a darning egg is, please give us a call, 714-545-2077. Seven, one, and we'll tell you um, whether or not you're right, because I know the answer. I'm so happy about this. Gildersleeve walked to work because he did not have the gas allotment for the vehicle. He was not an essential, considered an essential, um, was not in an essential um, business or service like a doctor, so his gas was really severely rationed, and he walked to work. Horace Hooker walked to work. Um, Doc Gamble walked in, in places where he could. Uh, he made Fibber walk to the Elks Club one night because of the gas shortage. Um, Alice Darling was part of a carpool, and it was such a big carpool that there was no room for Fibber in the car because he wanted to go with them one day. The McGees walked to 14th and Oak all the time. So people walked. They didn't use their cars because tires were 
rationed and gas was rationed and gas was rationed to preserve the tires, not the other way around, um, people collected little bits of soap, you know, the little pieces of soap that are left when a bar of soap is right. almost expended. Right. People saved those little chips and kept them in a container and would moisten them and press them and, and then dry it out and press them into a new piece of soap to put on the sink or in the bathtub. So that was pretty cool. That's one of the things that's on the market now, people that, that's being sold as a novelty item, uh, to put your soap chips in there and find ways to use the soap chips. I mean, of course, people in World War II were doing that all the time. They planted gardens, as they said. They canned food and put up preserves. They bought old bread. Now, one of, one of the sites... I was looking for a price on it. I think people could get it for a penny a loaf. If it, if it was more than a day old, they could get it for a penny a loaf. But I couldn't find any proof of that. But one of the sites that I came on had, uh, it, it was personal stories that they were talking about. And someone had taken this information and put it in an aggregate paragraph. <laughs> and instead of saying day old bread, said used bread. Now, used bread is not something I would particularly want on my table, but it was. It was day-old bread or older, and if it was older, it was frequently for free because there were no preservatives. Bakery bread got stale very quickly, and it was very hard to sell stale bread. So sometimes that was given away, and people with kids especially were at the door hoping that they had bread left over from the day before. Um, in really extreme circumstances, and we've we've seen this almost in cartoonish fashion, but it was a serious and real situation. The people who wore holes in the bottom of their shoes put cardboard inside their shoes to protect their feet from hitting, actually hitting the pavement because they had holes in the bottom of their shoes. Uh, they collected... Let's see, they bought day-to-day -day bread, um, used the cardboard. They, they, it, there was one note that I found that is fairly obvious, that many people went without meat or milk because they were two of the more expensive um, products. Even though milk was a price-controlled thing, the, the milk prices were kept very low, the New York City milk consumption during the Depression and World War II dropped by one million gallons a day. Wow. I think that wow. was just staggering. Wow. It must have been just during the Depression. It could not have been. It must have picked up during the war. I can't imagine that. Although the uh, price controls were World War II. They weren't Depression. They were World War II. When, um, you know, when the, when the rationing of milk and the uh, controls of prices of milk so that was during World War II. The milk consumption went down a million gallons a day. I don't know how many people lived in New York City in the 1940s. Do you have any idea? Nope. They're between 7 and 8 million now, um, but it certainly wasn't that number. Well, you know, it's so funny. If you listen to, like, We Hold the Truth in 1941, they talk about the population being 130 million, and here we're around 300 million. So we're about 300 million, yeah. yeah. And so we're about all triple, those people. We're about triple the size. Mm-hmm. That's just amazing to me. Yep. And the last thing is a leftover from an earlier show. We talked about this one night. Rent parties. Rent parties 
were gatherings of neighbors. They got together at someone's house, and each person put $2 in the pot to help wherever they were meeting, the house where they were meeting, the owners. They called them rent parties because people brought money to help pay the rent Mm. or the mortgage if they were paying them, had to make a, a mortgage payment and they were having trouble. So this was during the Depression and sometimes right into World War II that neighbors were helping neighbors. And that's not something you would expect to see happen today. I mean, could you imagine being invited to a gathering and just looking forward to dropping 10 or $15 or $20 because somebody was having trouble paying the rent? We've lost some of that caring attitude. And I, I, I know it's impractical in many circumstances yeah. and situations today, but it's, it's almost mind-blowing that people were eager to participate in these kinds of things, as soon as they found out that somebody was in trouble or having trouble, they would organize a rental party, a rent party, they called it. And it was, it, it was customary, $2 was customary. Mm-hmm. They would, each, each couple or each person, I, I would assume it's each couple who came, would leave $2 behind to put toward the rent. Wonderful. That's, <laughs> wow. That's a heartwarm type That's... thing, you know? I wonder if we still see a lot of that today, maybe not in the same form, but we don't we don't talk about it. I wonder. Don't, we we don't talk about it. No. Um, it's. I think it was the medium that was used to mm-hmm. actually have a social gathering. Right. Without any discomfort or any any thought, you know, when people are helped today, and, I, and, and when I say helped, I mean in, in this particular context, if they had trouble making a rent payment right. and somebody gave them money, it's not something that a lot of people would feel good about. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they'd feel uncomfortable, they'd feel needy, and yeah. not everybody, but you would, you would have a handful of people at least who were not comfortable having to rely on other people to do things that they were accustomed to doing for themselves. And in in this context, I mean, it was just what people did. Neighbors took care of neighbors, and nobody was uncomfortable. It was just something that was done. And uh, whoever got it going did a good thing. <laughs> was... you know, now, I, I know it's still fairly common around my area. I don't know if it's still common around the country. Uh, maybe because I, I see, I'm wondering back in the 34, people knew who their neighbors were. Mm-hmm. And what I'm thinking is, when you were short of something, sugar, butter, whatever, you ran next door and you borrowed it. Yes. Uh, I still see that here today in my little neighborhood because we, we, we know our, we know the neighborhood. We've been together for many, many years. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's still e- even a common practice today. Yeah. I, I wonder when somebody's short, they guess, well, I'm just going to run down to the store if they can financially take care of it. Uh-huh. We have such a mobile society now. We have people moving in and out of neighborhoods who never even met their next-door neighbors. Yeah. So I guess it is kind of unusual. We're really living in a different world. Yeah. Anyway, we would love to hear what you heard about, what your grandparents did, what your parents did, what you may be doing as a result of what they did to be cautious with money and make things last longer, um, to use it up, wear it out, make it do. 
and what? tell us who a dog named Bullet was. Yeah. <laughs> 714-545-2071. And we had school experiences last week. People were calling in with school experiences, and if you missed that, give us a call with your school experience. If you couldn't get through or you missed listening last week, what kind of school experiences did you have when you went back to school in September? Last week was the first week back to school for most, um, not for most kids, but for a lot of um, people who went back to school in earlier years, never, never went back before Labor Day. They're going back before Labor Day now. Yeah. But we pretended that because it was Labor Day coming up, we were planning to go back to school, and we wanted to know what your experiences were. What did you remember about school? What was your best day, your worst day? What happened in first grade when you got left at the door? Was it a good thing or a bad thing? Call in with those experiences, too, and we would just love to hear from you. Well, I have two things for you, Patricia. I'm here. Is it going to be a question? No. I'm, I'm, I don't have to say I don't know? Nope, you have to say, no, cool. I don't know that. I'm off the hook. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. I, I was um, I was going to uh, Sirius Radio here in the house, and I flipped over to the Classic Channel, and they were playing a Fibber McGee and Molly. Uh-huh. And Alice Darling uh, was on the segment I was hearing, and, you know, that was played by our friend Shirley Mitchell. Well, I thought it was fun. They were talking about her boyfriends. And J- Jim Joy mentioned that her boyfriend, Paul Weston, left a message for her. Well, I thought that was funny. I don't know if more people knew uh, Paul Weston was Tommy Dorsey, the arranger, who later was the cl- director for Joe Stafford, with Mary Joe Stafford. And in a private life at that time, and that, Shirley Mitchell was going out with Paul Weston. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I thought I would a kick that that in the the Don Quinn and probably felt. Thing I have is a surprise for you. Rut row. And the listeners. Oh, okay, what? Um, a couple weeks ago, our friend Bob Blow called in, and we were talking about Tony Randall. Uh-huh. And I mentioned I had, thanks to Frank Percy, an excerpt of The Tonight Show, where Tony Randall talked about old-time radio. I loved Tony Randall. So we're going to play this now. This is his conversation with Johnny Carson. We're going to talk about the opera and old-time radio. Oh, great fun. So, hooray. hooray. Okay, I'm ready. Here we go. Tony Randall is probably the finest actor in America. Tony Randall is probably the funniest man in America. Preceding was a paid political announcement by, <laughs> by Tony Randall. He's a funny guy, most amusing. Would you welcome Tony Randall? <laughs> You know, I did something when I, <laughs> I did something when I stood up that is a habit of mine, and I catch myself when I see the show. Do you have any of those? I have one of these things. 
And I did. I don't know why. When I stood up, shake hands with you. A little. You know, for no reason. Uh, no, it's not looking at them. I want to see you. But I do that occasionally. Mm. Or I do this. Or yes, you do I got a tie. I'm a tie straightener and one of these. Do you have any of those little. Yeah, you're one of I you? think I do this. Yes. Bob Hope, for example, when he works his. Is the uh, cuff straightener, mm. you know? But I want to tell you, and he does those little things. You I, have any? I clear my throat, I think. <clears throat> I do that nervous habit. Really? I think so. I just wondered. I just brought it up. Of course, you wondered. People wonder about it all the time, and they ask. <laughs> and I think you should. <laughs> <laughs> is there right. anything else at all that you'd like to know? <laughs> no, not really. Are you in trouble with the opera people? Last couple of times you've been on the show, you haven't been yes. well, too I... kindly toward opera. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm an ardent. I, it's a disease. I'm an addict of, of opera. Is that learned, or is that something that you grew up with? No, no, I don't think you can grow up with it because I don't think opera's for children. That's why we got involved in the right. thing. You, you get, you come to it late. I think I must be in fairly good aroma with the opera people because I'm going tomorrow to Atlanta to uh, do a benefit for the uh, Atlanta Civic Opera Company, which is in serious financial trouble. A tremendous benefit. A number of big opera stars, Cheryl Milnes, John Vickers, Patrice Munsell going down. It'll be a wonderful show there tomorrow. But in any case, I... Uh, the last time I was here was with Dick Cavett, the night right. you were ill. And I mentioned that opera isn't for children. We'd been talking about it before because the plots are not, not the kind that... Uh, it's not that I believe in censorship. It's that the children aren't interested in these very adult things. Don't you some, think some operas are kind of dull, to be honest? The dull ones don't stay in the repertory. They don't play them at all? Mm, very, very, very seldom. But those of us who are addicts, we can go every single night. As I said, it's a disease. My wife won't go with me any, any longer. Why? Well, I, I, I go almost every night. To the opera? Yeah. I live very close to the opera house, and I'll stroll by after dinner. You have a season ticket? There's a season ticket? Is that the correct term, me. like the, the, the Giants or something? Oh, no, people do buy subscriptions, but I have many, many friends in the house, and I'm on the opera broadcast on Saturdays frequently. And, and uh, it, it just becomes something, a craving, the way some people just must How about ballet? Are you a ballet? Now, there are people... I used to be. Ballophiles or ballophiles? Balletta means. Balletta means? Means. Maniacs about ballet. I used to go every night to that, but I, <coughs> I replaced it with a, with a sicker delusion. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing. Uh, last time the, uh, the Bolshoi was here, and they oh, yeah. are magnificent, and I had not seen them, and I went, and I really enjoyed it. But I'll tell you one thing about ballet stars. They make the average actor look like a chump when they come on to take a bow at the end. Ballet artistes, the big ones, yes. can milk applause like no one. I have ever seen in my life. Then you have never seen... They will this. finish something, and they come on, and they stand, and they stand, and then they glide over to the other side, and they stand. And it's got more guts than I would have. Yes. Waiting, and no. they wait them out. No, the They most... wait them out. If they don't applaud, they, they keep doing this till they applaud. The, the, most, and the most atrocious and the, I've ever seen is um, an <coughs> opera soprano when she's lost her top notes. It's bad, huh? Then she takes bows as you have never seen bows in your life. I don't know. The bow covers the fact that she didn't make the top notes. <laughs> I'm serious. But they are great, great when they do it, right? Yes, because they have a clack anyway that applauds. And it starts... They know that she's not going to make the top note. They start applauding before... To cover the... Yeah. And she gets very, very busy then with a handkerchief and with everything and goes... Ah! And dies. Real fast. <laughs> and then the bows and the bows and the... And the flowers coming on. Flowers and all that. All is to conceal the fact that she didn't do it well. The whole world was Yeah. The theater, I mean, ballet and opera is a yes. whole distinct world all of its own. Very close-knit. Well, 
The Opera House, New York, seats, what is it, nearly 4,000 people. They play, um, I think it's 28 weeks every night. You can't get a seat. They're sold out almost 100% for 28 weeks. That's an awful lot of people who like to see it. Do you ever watch, you used to do, radio daytime shows, Sirius oh, yes. Center. But yes. have you watched them on television? The things that they do, as you know, the censorship and so forth is going pretty much for prime nighttime. But sit for a couple of days and watch daytime television. And they cover every disaster that can, can be decovered. That who were the Hummerts? Uh, were the people in radio who wrote yes. about at one time, Ann Hummert and... Uh, Frank and Ann Hummert. Wrote, I guess, nine or ten different... Seventeen. At one time, right? Mm -hmm. On the air. And they had a famous... I think we talked about it once. They had a famous plot once where the fellow went through a revolving door. And one of the famous devices of the soap operas is the flashback. In other words, it's like they do in movies, you know, they dissolve through and it, they flash back a few years. This fellow was going through a revolving door. And as he is going through, something is on his mind. And he said, I remember the first time I met Carol. And they dissolve. And for two weeks, he was in, actually, the revolving door. <laughs> but all of these shows flashed back to things that had happened previous to this. And two weeks later, he came out of the revolving door on the screen. Now, it sounds ridiculous. Yes. But they would do that. I, I was on a show once called Grand Central Station. Remember that one? Heartland of America and the train. Which... Yeah. Uh, it was one of my first jobs in radio. And the scene was that I meet my brother. I thought he's been dead for 10 years. And there he is. And my line was, grasp that hand, old chap. <laughs> After 10 years? Grasp that hand. Grasp that hand, old chap. And I, I couldn't say it. Every time we'd come to it in rehearsal, the other actors would just give me looks of commiseration. <laughs> well, what can you do with Wait, such you, a line? You plunge on. Well, well, just before we went on the air, the, the producer, his name was Martin Horrell, he came running out of the dressing room, uh, the control room. I'm so theatrical. Cheers. Andy. <laughs> he said, uh, Tony, change that line, a grasp that hand, old chap. Uh, make it grasp this hand, old chap. Oh. Uh, much more current. Much grasp this hand, old chap. Good change. Vivian hasn't been with us for some time. And there you go. That was terrific. So, hopefully, plan, I will be having more of tonight's show, and we can drop those as part of clips. That's a nice little feature on the Saturday night show. I love Tony Randall. Yeah. I mean, he was the consummate performer. He could do anything. Oh, I know. He sang, although he, I don't recall ever hearing him do it um, on a radio or television show. He may have done it on The Odd Couple, or in, in a situation type thing where he would get together with a group of opera singers. I think he belonged to an opera society. <clears throat> Excuse me, not an opera society, an opera club. Uh -huh. And they would get together and sing. And he may have sung in that, although um, the, the comedy built around it, I mean, Oscar was a cigar-smoking slob. <laughs> <laughs> and Tony Russell was the prissy little... Um, person who followed him around with a dust cloth and, and air spray, yeah. and Oscar would show up at the opera club and was as in place there as a guy in a catcher's mask at uh, a debutante ball. <laughs> it, just, it just didn't match, but love Tony Randall. That was great. Uh, that, that was just super, um, a snapshot of 
from their perspective. You bet. 714-545-2071. Give us a call. We'd love to talk to you. If not, you know, Patricia and I will have to just say, okay, nobody's listening to us tonight. If nobody calls, you're going to get your question, Walden. Let's go. Let's go for it. Are you serious? Yes, let's go. Let's, let's do it. You're not going to beg for people no. to rescue you? No, I'm going for it. Let's, I'm going to roll the dice and we'll see if we can do it right now. You are, This is American history on top of it. Um, it's it's relative to old-time radio, but it's a chunk of American history, so I thought it would be most appropriate for you. Walden is our resident historian, American history historian, so when I get something that's got history ties to it, I am delighted. Somebody is rescuing you, Walden. Hello there. You're on Patricia. Ah. Okay. Um... Well, then, you know, this has happened for a couple of weeks in a row, so perhaps later on tonight somebody in your house could check caller ID and see who's been calling and, um, you know, because this is really serious stuff. Robin's got a serious question here. So if you'd like to call in and you're calling in to rescue Robin, please stay on the line long enough to say hi. Okay, here's your question, Robin. All right. People got to rescue you or you're doomed. Here we go. All right. American history and radio. This comes with such cool history. I have a new collection in my stash of shows. They are Harry Truman speeches. And I listened to one, and it was titled, His Speech at a Jefferson Jackson Day Dinner. Your question is, what is Jefferson Jackson Day? Um, this is my theory. I think it goes back to the Civil War when we had Jefferson Davis and Stonewall Jackson. And let's see, hello there, you are on with Patricia and Walden. Hello. Testing one, two, three. I guess not. We'll pull that down and uh, and let that one go. So you're thinking Jefferson Davis and Stonewall Jackson. No, it's much more intriguing than that. I have never heard of it before. It started, best guesstimate, they believe it started in 1828. And it is relative to Andrew Jackson and Thomas Jefferson. It is a fundraising event. It's a democratic um, happening during election years, usually in the springtime. And people get together at a fundraising event. It gives people an opportunity to hear candidates and support them. That makes sense to me because... um Technically, you know, uh, Andrew Jackson was the first uh, official Democrat to run for, to become president of the United States. Mm-hmm. But they, a lot of them traced their roots to Thomas Jefferson because he was the head of the uh, Democrat-Republican Party. That's exactly right. Ah. There are, um, there's reason to believe that this kind of a fundraising event happened with the 
both of them, which I find startling in 1828, but the, the, there are a couple of paragraphs that I want to read to you here. The Democratic Party started, started this as a means of organizing support for Jefferson or Jackson. They weren't quite sure which. Uh-huh. Um, and it, it came, uh, of course, there's, we're, we're talking about Whigs and, and National Republicans, but yep. it started as a fundraiser there. Jefferson gave the Democratic Party its being. This is from an invitation to uh, um, oh gosh, a, a Jefferson-Jackson dinner in Santa Barbara, California. There's a little paragraph in there. Jefferson gave the Democratic Party its being. Jackson gave it its full meaning. Jefferson-Jackson dinners are held throughout the country, often in February or March. In presidential election years, they provide an excellent platform for candidates contending in the primaries. Wow. And the next one I want to read to you is from a different source. It is usually held in February or March around the same time as the Republican Party's equivalent, which is called Lincoln Day, Reagan Day, or Lincoln-Reagan Day dinners. Mm. So... We've got this piece of history that dates back to 1828. It's current. It, it is, yep. or I have never heard of it before. It happens every year during a, every election year, and um, now there is a counterpart: Lincoln Reagan Day dinners in the Republican Party. I've never heard of it, and I know you're really up on your politics, yep. and I've not heard of it. Now everybody in cyberspace has heard of it. There's another interesting note at the bottom. Please go ahead and answer. Okay, we'll see here. Hello there, Carl. You are Patricia. Hey, Patricia. Hey, Weldon. How are you? Good. Nolan? Yeah. How you doing? Doing fine. I, I was going to suggest that, Carl, you got the results and I hang up. Uh-huh. Try answering it on the second ring. <laughs> that probably might be a good idea. Or the 14th. <laughs> Sometimes those computer phones. Yeah. Don't react like the others, and it doesn't realize you've picked up. Ah. Well, the, the, the timing of it um, each week is identical. So. <laughs> but it's, it's not me. No, I, you know what? We blamed it on you one night because it, at one point, I, it may have even happened two times. You were, you were just something was happening with your equipment, and you were hanging up on yourself. <laughs> we say, "Oh, goody, it's no one," and you'd be gone. <laughs> So, how are things? Well, fine. I was, I was listening to your World War II uh, sacrifices and things people had to do. Yeah. Did you ever hear of uh, ladies drawing a line up the back of their, their uh, calves to indicate uh, that they were wearing hose when really they weren't? Use an eyebrow pencil to... Yes. What? Back of their leg? Uh-huh. You ever heard of that? Yeah, I have so. Simply. 
face, and we got to see it. Yeah. I, I also was relating to the, uh, the dog story. The uh, I couldn't afford, we couldn't afford a dog when I was little, so uh-huh. when I was a kid. But my father got a, a raccoon, a baby raccoon that a man found and gave it to him. Are you serious? I raised it as my pet. And you know they um, they want everything that they eat. They they look like they're washing the food. Have you ever seen one do that? Huh? You have. Well, when it's a pet, how did you make arrangements for it to wash its food? Well, I had kept a pan of water by by his uh, food dish. And what did you feed him? Well, <laughs> normally it would be table scraps and things like that. What you might might feed a dog, and they they like fruit and. Uh, but I I would give them a vanilla wafer. To a vanilla wafer when you put it in water, uh-huh. it disappears. Yes, it does. It would disintegrate. It was so funny. Uh-huh. They're very vulnerable when they're eating and they're looking around constantly and not looking at what they're doing. They're just feeling the. And they take the vanilla wafer from me and he's looking around and putting that. And then he'd look in the water and it's gone. So I gave him another one and it went away.
age of the lighter-than-air airship, the Zeppelin, is making a comeback in Germany with West Berlin, getting the green light to introduce regular dirigible-borne passenger and freight service between West Berlin and four cities in West Germany and other countries. The announcement of the soon-to-be-instituted service comes almost 40 years after the Lakehurst catastrophe in New Jersey, where the last big dirigible and regular service, the Hindenburg, exploded in a massive ball of fire and sounded the death knoll for all future large-size Zeppelins. The Zeppelins, being mainly a German invention, it was all too natural that it should be a German who would seek to revive them. The man chiefly responsible for the revival of the dirigible is a veteran designer and pilot, 80-year-old Professor Otto von Unfug of West Berlin. Professor von Unfug flew as a captain in many of the German Zeppelins in the 1920s and 1930s. He was in command of the Z-120, which flew nonstop from Berlin to Nome, Alaska, in 1940, setting a record which stands to this day. The announcement of the revival of the Zeppelin came at a well-attended press conference held recently here in West Berlin. Professor von Unfug explained the reasoning behind the revival of the Zeppelins in this day of fast jet service throughout the world. The uh, traffic is now so fast, and uh, in the area of, of in, in the era of, of jet planes, I think that mankind should try to go back to a little bit slower movement on, on, on the traffic, and so I think the Zeppelin will be much, much better. They can glide through the air with uh, with this normal speed of movement and even have 
a single jet engine at the stern of the craft and will cruise at a speed up to 260 miles per hour. He says the dirigibles will be filled with hydrogen because German scientists have discovered a new method for making the gas non-flammable and non-explosive. Reporting for Nightside from Berlin, this is Specialist John Prophet. Oh, by the way, before you rush out to make your reservation on the Zeppelins, think just for a minute. Today is April 1st. Very good. Patricia, did you get pulled in by that one? Um, for the beginning? Yeah. Um, when, he, when you got to the point with the radio tower and landed, the only one that's landing in the middle of the city, I said, I got it. <laughs> it took a while. I am so terrible. Honest to goodness, I am. I am a straight man's joy. <laughs> That was good. Yeah. That was good. I I laughed out loud at the at the bowling alleys, and then I, I a thousand passengers with cabins, in, and then you put a jet engine on the rear end of it. <laughs> was his answer to uh, jet travel? And You're talking about a cruise ship in the air. Yeah. You know. Right, right, and that was the image that I had in my brain. The only thing that was missing were the fishing poles. So this was good. <laughs> That was, and when was that broadcast? Uh, that was um, after I left. I, I, did, I discovered that after I got home. I, I don't recall. I think it was probably in the late 60s. It was good. Whoever wrote that did a wonderful job. And I thought the professor, whoever acted that out, was good, too. He sounded like Henry Kissinger. <laughs> he did. I've got a, you like bloopers, and i got a couple of the other things here that are short. Oh, cool. And I'll get out of the way. I love bloopers. Featuring Sergeant Stan, the manly exercise man. Ten minutes a day keeps your friends away. Monday through Friday for gals and guys, 905 brings tears to your eyes. Drop what you're doing and join AFN. It's time right now for a call to Shake Ten. Good morning, all you fat people out there in Radio Land. Time to get off your fat chairs and get yourself in shape on Shake Ten. I've noticed that many of you write me and complain about fat four fingers. So today we're going to try an exercise that's guaranteed to give you the shapeliest four fingers in your block. Here's the way it goes. Put your head under your left knee on the count of one. On the count of two, raise your right leg and place it behind your left shoulder. On three, rapidly reverse the positions. On the count of four, jump in the air. Ready? Exercise. Time will be somewhere around 6.50 o'clock. You are on the spot. This is On the Spot. Presented quite nicely at 10 minutes before 19 and 22 hours. Tonight and every night, you will hear true views for use and interviews on the spot. You are on the spot, presented quite nicely through the combined facilities of the AFN Newsworthy and Improbable Events Department. Tonight, On the Spot takes you to our correspondent in Berlin who describes the exciting opening of a public restroom in a new bowling alley. <laughs> Winner of tonight's competition becomes Berlin's entry in the northern regional elimination of the Usual Wide Tournament of Knowledge. And now, here's your moderator for tonight's protest and 
besides yourself? Oh, yeah. The, the newsman that was to follow it was totally bald. He shaved his head. And it start, you could see it turning red. <laughs> First laughter, you know. Yes. But, so, but I didn't... I, I had only been there a couple of weeks. I thought, well, that's it. The shortest career in broadcasting Miami. So you were passing off at the end of that commercial. You, you were finished. And somebody else had to pick up? He had to pick up. He had to open his mic and start reading. Uh-huh. 
hanging out there. And I thought the program director was laughing so hard he almost wrecked his car, he said. Oh. I can understand that. But I've got to find the uh, the one where the uh, talking about the porpoise in the men's room. Uh-huh. Yes, please do. An open reel tape, and that's in another box. And as soon as I get through, through transferring those, I'll, I'll get it to you. I, I really hope you can get to that. I'm not sure. Well, then, was that part of the conversation that the three of us had with uh, together when Nolan joined us for an interview, the, the um, porpoise in the bathroom? We talked about it off air. Off air. And in detail, I think we briefly touched upon it on air, but we did most of it off air. Okay. You remember these things so well. Um which is which is why I'm so grateful Baldwin is my buddy because he's my memory for me. <laughs> um, yes. When you put that, there was another one that was equally outrageous. Um, a breakup, you mean? Uh, yeah, well, the, the one like the purpose in the in the bathroom. Yeah, the 52-foot uh, whale <laughs> that was found floating face down in the Hudson River. Right. <laughs> you know, the... The guy that wrote the story, his name was Grimaldi, and we from New York, and we accused him of being in the gang anyway. Yeah. But, yeah. Oh gosh, well, that's funny. Okay, well, your your mission is to find those goodies and share them with us. I can embarrass myself. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I mean, gee whiz, you could blame it on somebody else. No, your voice is pretty distinctive. I, I don't think you could blame things on somebody else. I wouldn't bring it up if I didn't want to share it. Oh, well, I, I do appreciate that because some of these are really good. They are priceless. No, they are just so good. Do you have the Kentucky Fried Chicken one on tape? No. Fortunately, that didn't get recorded. <laughs> Frequently recorded. Kentucky Fried Chicken people are probably grateful as well. Oh, it probably it's talk of the town, you know. Wait, you know, something like that would probably increase their business. It certainly increased attention. Right. That was better than their slogan. We had um, one occasion, you know, you, you don't really know what the audience is thinking because unlike being live on stage or something. Right. You just have to assume or if, if the engineer reacts favorably. But I, I was, uh, we had kind of a swap and shop thing in the record show, a local record show, and this person had a poodle that uh, she wanted to breed with another poodle before she went back to the States. And I gave the numbers to call and that, and I paused and said, you know what that makes me? Do you know what that made me? No, what? The pimp in the middle arranging this liaison <laughs> for this dog. No, this is a family show. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I know that's okay. I understand what you're saying. Um, go ahead. Anyway, the story further, I was at a restaurant that night with Guys, we were sitting there, and I heard a guy at the next table say, and then he said, you know what that makes me? And he slapped the table, laughing. So I got a good reaction from that one a little later on. Well, I guess you did. Uh, <laughs> you had some really interesting experiences. I guess so. What? Are you, you going to write my book for me? Well, I'll, I'll corroborate with you. <laughs> there aren't an awful lot of people I would say that to. The word collaboration makes me break out in hives. I mean, really, think about it. Well, I have uh, taken up enough time with my bag of tricks, and I'll get out of the way. But, oh, goodness gracious, it's always a joy to uh, to listen to you. Did you send anything in the envelope yet? Uh, no, 
I haven't. Um, but I, the uh, Dimension X, are, they are great. The quality is good, and it looks like I have the whole run. Excellent. I, I can't recall if I, I, I know I gave you what I have, and um, it might be the whole thing. There are some really nifty collections out there that I've managed to unearth. So I made a, a CD or a DVD for you. I'm not sure if what you asked for. I think it was something that I'm not supposed to tell you I have. <laughs> Just a minute. Oh, no, you asked for the Green Hornet, right? Oh, right. Right. Well, that's sitting here. I'm not going to send it to you until I get the envelope. call to at 714-545-2071. Tell us about your pet. Did you have a pet when you were growing up? I haven't had pets. I had plenty of pets. Yeah, you had a lot. I had a lot of pets. had a cat that ate the canary? Uh, yeah, well, let's see here. I had a cat who ate, um, yep, ate, ate uh, quails. I have a uh, well, well, we were talking about dog toys. Um, we had a Pucky, because I really couldn't pronounce Puppy, uh-huh. and Thomas. Thomas was a was a toy miniature poodle, and he really thought he was a big dog. <laughs> so, so one time, neighborhood friend came over with the German Shepherd, and here if at the front door, and here comes Thomas charging at the Saint Bernard. I mean, at the German Shepherd. And the German shepherd picked Thomas up by the ear, shook it, and dropped him. Oh. Yep. So that's one of the stories that I remember. Hello there, Carl. You are Patricia. Good evening, good evening, good evening. Good evening. President, how are you? Okie dokie. Regrouped, thankfully. Good. Went to the Jersey Shore today, and that seems like my... It's always home to me, Jersey. I'm a Jersey girl, so Jersey is always home, and the ocean always brings me refreshment and just, you know, sitting there watching it. And mm-hmm. How big of a drive is it from your place down there? About an hour. That's a pretty good drive. Yeah. That's a good drive. I would have just... Oh, are you going across the Arizona Narrows? No, that's going to Manhattan. I go across the... Uh, it could, I could go across the Gothel's Bridge, or I could go across the Outer Bridge crossing. Okay. I would have guessed longer than that. Well, I'm glad you had some good fun today. Uh, it was gorgeous weather today. Absolutely gorgeous. And uh, so we just played uh, in the arcades, you know, and built up our points and came home with a nice roaster oven 
and <laughs> good for you. How much uh, playing did you have to do in order to get enough points to get your oven? Um, well, yeah. What, you, what we do is we go at different times and we save our points and save our points and just build and build and build them. So you, you can't put a real you can't re really put break it down. Yes, I 
we would feed it live mice. And when he got old enough, we let him loose, and he always stayed in the area, and he lived many, many years. And we had cats, and we had fish, and we had birds, and, you know, the typical stuff. Right now, I have, um, I have a cat, and her name is, uh, 123. <laughs> she answers, yeah, it's true, she answers to one, she's gorgeous. Uh, there was a stray cat that I was feeding for a couple of years, and every time she would have a litter of kittens, she would bring me her kittens, and I would get friendly with them, and then I would take them to a no-kill shelter so they could have a home. But the mother cat was very small, and she would not let anyone near her but me. And last year, she brought another adult female cat to me, and well, not to me, but to my back duck to eat. And I put my hand down to touch her. She didn't budge. The following day, I pet her and scratched her behind her ears. She didn't budge. The third day, I'm sitting on my deck. She jumped on my lap, laid on her back, and allowed me to scratch her belly and everything. I brought her in, got her sex, got her shots. She is the most loving lap cat you could ever, ever have. And she's Very, very lucky. One, two, three has a ten. 
to the list. Let's add another one. Another dog? Yeah, let's, let's put that, put Ty. Who did Ty belong to? Um, I know that one. I did. did, did. I know. Alright, go ahead. Sure, put that one down on the paper on the way. Well, let somebody kick a shot. Who, who did Ty belong to? Tig. Uh-huh. Tig. Okay. We can do that. Okay. Uh, is that coming from the family center? Yeah, I just thought about it. But, uh, just happened to hit. Oh, that person's really cute. Uh, it was. I was looking at that, and and I got about seven out of fifteen. That's not too bad, you know. I mean, what? Oh, not too bad. You did wrong. Yeah. Now, if a question from the forties in the forties, I probably would have had seven out of fifteen. Yeah, that's not good enough for Walter. But uh, uh, the sixties, I, I felt pretty good about that. Uh, you did. You did. Uh, all right. You know, me, I'm, I'm older, so <laughs> I, I got them all, you know, I've been around here longer. <laughs> I'm good. Let me see what I've got for Madam President here. <clears throat> you know what I wanted to tell you, Walden? Yes. A neighbor of mine bought a new home in New Jersey, and they moved out of their home across the street from me. And occasionally they would come back and throw things out. Right. Now, I never go and take someone else's stuff when they put it out. Uh-huh. But my other neighbor came up to me and up to my door and said, Lucy, you have to go across the street to Betty's because 
you're not going to believe what they just threw out. So I went across the street and they threw out boxes upon boxes of albums and gates. Oh. The bulk of them never even opened. Oh my word. Oh my. And in the collection. Yes. There's a WC filled <laughs> album. That's pretty good. That is amazing. Wow. Did you bring them all home? Did you take care of them? Is the Pope Catholic? <laughs> oh, I apologize. Silly me. A record fan. Even though I turned around, I said, and, and the ones who knew, they all know I collected. Mm-hmm. So it was, I was like, well, shame on Betty and Tom for not and, you know, just coming and saying, hey, Russ, we got all these homes, you want them? Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, sometimes those they were strange, so I guess they were having a strange day. Well, I, I, have, a, I have a good story, something very similar that happened to Frank Bercy. Frank came home, and he was noticing they were uh, tearing down all NBC. Um, it was home. It was it was it turned into home savings and loan, which was there, you know, alone. And he noticed on the dumpster, because it was throwing everything out, there was the handrail that the people used to use for Lux Radio Theater, the movie stars. Oh my gosh! It was just sitting out there. Well, Frank. Went home and his next door neighbor was the gentleman that owned the home savings and loan. And, and he said, You know what I see out there? It's this handrail with all the movie stars held on to to do the Lux Radio Theater show back in the 1940s and 50s that Cecil B. DeMille designed. And he said, Do you want it? Yes. So Frank went back to the construction area, picked up the handrail, brought it home. And got it appraised mm-hmm. for guess how much? I wouldn't even be able to put a price tag on that. Especially any idea what it might have been appraised or a little simple handrail. I, I couldn't, I wouldn't even guess. It's in the thousands, but I, I have no idea. Right. How much was it? $250,000. <laughs> Uh, 
different radios from different eras. Now, what the earliest radio do you have in the room? Um, it's the one, it's the cathedral that sat on the table. Oh. Okay. But my ultimate purchase one that I really would love to find is one of the ones I grew up with. My father had in our bedroom, he had it was on the floor and came up very high. And of course it was only AM, there was no FM. Mm -hmm. And it was with the tubes in the back. I am dying. I mean, not that I could afford it, but I would, it would be my ultimate thing to yeah. own. Where'd you find it? Have you found it? Oh, I found one. I found one. But in Pennsylvania, on a trip to Pennsylvania. But, uh, but the thing is, if, if I were to be able to afford it, they didn't have extra tubes to go with it. Uh -huh. If tubes go, then you, you know, you can't use it. You can't play it. on the net that actually still holds on to old tubes and resells them. Well, there used to be a place here on Staten Island that used to have the tubes and everything, but they've gone out of business in the past three, four years, and uh, since they've gone, I have not known any other place to be able to get them, because I do have a Falco table model that has mm -hmm. tubes. Wow. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will not play it around because... I just, if, if, if it should run, if the, if the tube should go out, I would be crushed. But I do, I have a, if I were to sell every item in my music room, I could buy my house a beautiful, nice home on the beach. You know, you know, uh, there's a great story that Frankie Lane is told about Frankie Lane. Um, I don't know, most people knew that he was a coin collector. Wow. And when he was in Vegas, he used to get paid $5,000 a show. Mm -hmm. Well, to kill time between show, he and his wife were asked to get paid in silver dollars. Wow. So what they did, they would sit in a room and go through the silver dollars, and he would pick the, the valuable ones. And turn the rest back into his, you know, into the checking account. He he collected enough silver dollars to when he cast it in, he bought his house in San Diego. Wow! There you go. Yeah. What a great yeah. story. Yeah. There's a, I mean, I've I've got a coin that my when I first met my husband, he had already uh, had a ticket to go to Vegas, and he had an extra ticket someone backed up. And we had just started dating, so he said, you know, if you can go, you want to go? And he's like, I got the extra ticket. It wouldn't cost you anything because I've already got the extra ticket. So we went, and I played this one machine, and this $10 eagle coin came out. I didn't even know I had it. But it's in a case and everything. And I have not. Taking it out of the case, I will not let go of it. But it's a big eagle ten dollar coin. Wow. Well, huge.
So what what, what record album do you have, Lucy, that's your prized possession? The one that you would, when, if you decide, I'm going to sell everything, but. It would have to be my collection of anything that's photographed. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I want just one. Which one? Just one. Just one. God. My little Richard on Specialty album. Uh, Specialty 78. One of the very best concerts I ever saw was him doing it. He's definitely a showman of showmen, especially in a live concert. Yeah, I saw him as well because uh, he was at Madison Square Garden, and my husband and I had, unfortunately, I won tickets from CBS FM, and we had gone, and the 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 only reason I even wanted to win these tickets was because they were having Jerry Lee Lewis and Larry Richard. B.B. King and everybody else. So, I mean, who doesn't want to go and see the two pianists battle it out? So, I mean, to, to have his specialty 78 photographed for me, that is my ultimate. That is my ultimate. So, you know, I have many, many collectibles. I have many, many autographed 78, 45s albums. CDs, a book of them in frames, on the walls, but that specialty, 78 Little Richard Artigat, no, I would never, ever let that go. Go on. Yeah, kill me first. Okay, we'll let you keep that one. (laughs) (laughs) But the rest of them, all my Brenda Lee's and that are autographed and everything, those I could let go. I could let go of everything, but that's that one specialty. No, I won't. That's original label.
I put together the entire collection and I dropped it on a DVD. So there's one sheet, one disc for that, and we're going to um, a set of the Commander Francis for you. Yorkers do New Jersey accents, what can I say? Seven one four five four five two zero seven one. If you'd like any other questions, you can call in 
and change the topic, you know, if you want to talk about something, we're we'll open to that. Saving pennies, the one we did in World War II, and we wound up with pets. We wound up, oh, and... And school experience. And Patricia has a school experience that she wants to share. Oh, goodness gracious, my school experience. I thought about it after we hung up last week. My high school, for the first two years, was in an old, old building. It was magnificent, but not, you know, it, it was not something that you would refurbish by any means. It was huge, and it was probably a boarding school at one time. But it had ceilings that were probably 12 to 14 feet high. I mean, it was enormous. It had a huge oak staircase and um, closets that had rolling uh, or sliding doors that they were also 10 or 12 feet high and thick and heavy and kids used to hide in there to get out of classes. But they also had across the top in the front of the classrooms that overlooked the hallway, there was a bank of windows across the top adjacent to the ceiling. And one was a transom, which is a window that tips in over the top of a door. And I'll tell you about over the transom um, later. But somebody was assigned to a hallway bell. I mean, this building didn't even have school bells, you know, and um, kind of class bells. Somebody actually walked the hallways with a hand bell and rang it like a, like a great big um, Salvation Army bell. And only it was really huge. It was a school bell. The town crier. The town crier. This is a very long story, and I apologize, but we had to wear uniforms. We were in uniform, and part of the uniform was something that nobody wore, but everybody had to have, and it was a beanie. It was, you know, it wasn't like a propeller-type beanie, but we called them beanies, and they were hats that matched the uniforms. And one day... We were in class, it was Latin class, and, and the, the transom window and all the other windows needed a very long window hook to open and close. And one day in Latin class, we looked up and marching across the top in front of the windows that were across the top near the ceiling was this beanie walking along the hallway. The person who was assigned to the bell, put a beanie on top of the window pole and was walking the hallway with this thing walking past all of the classroom windows with this beanie going by, mm-hmm. could hear the laughter rippling in the hallways all the way down the hall. I don't know if anybody got in trouble over it, but it was a visual that just blew your mind watching a beanie walk by in the window. I can tell it really blew you away. I like that. I'm smiling. I'm smiling. I know you're smiling. That was was a fun story. In the middle of Latin class, um, with the teacher's back to the wall and the beanie walking past her in in the window behind her. Uh I was going to tell you about transoms. You know what I was talking about when when I I saw the trance in the window that sits on top of a door in an old building. Right. It tips in. To, to give you some airflow, mm-hmm. right? There's a writing term that says it, it is over the transom, and it means that it is a cold submission to an editor. You've not communicated with this editor before. You just wrote 
work or this book and sent it cold and the term is over the transom. But it actually has roots back into the late 1800s when writers would wait for editors to go home and go into the building and literally throw their manuscripts over the transom from the hallway. They would stand on the hallway and throw through the, through the window at the top of the door. Or would, and it was called the transom window, and they would literally throw their manuscripts over the transom, and that's where the expression submitted over the transom came from. Huh. Chunk of history. Like, everybody cares, right? I do. I'm glad. You're not buddy. I know. I have a son, Ed, in front of me from 1941. And what does, what does it say? It's a Basco ad. With chocolate milk. Chocolate milk. Basco chocolate milk. Mm-hmm. It came in a jar that you had to spoon. I guess you had to spoon it into milk. Is that, did you ever have Basco? Did any? Nope. Somebody out there has had Basco. Yeah. Anyway, it's in a jar, so it looks like, I mean, you can't pour it, so you probably had to spoon it into your milk. And they've got rich with iron and all sorts of really good things for kids. And the picture is, uh, it's a painted picture of a cow with a calf. And the calf is saying, Mama, why can't I have Basco in it? <laughs> really cute. Yeah. And what tickles me about this is that it was a piece of artwork. The artist did not sign this. Nobody knows who did it. Mm-hmm. But if you wanted a colored reproduction of the painting, all you had to do was send your name and address in, and they would send you this picture suitable for framing. Very nice. For free. Very nice. For nothing. Just a postcard with your name and address. My goodness. So that was Basco. That was Basco from 1941. I mean, that was pretty cool. Another school story. Um, when my dad was in college, his history class was 8 in the morning uh, at the University of Nebraska. Uh, the professor had a tendency to fall asleep while he was lecturing. So he would lecture a while, doze off and start snoring, and about 15 minutes he would wake up and keep on lecturing. And uh, the, the point that what the kids did, they just opened the book and read until the professor woke up. But that was a normal routine. <laughs> this is not an education. No. This is something he paid for, huh? Yep. And then my, in my mom's college class, her history professor was a hoot. He walked in, um, doing every, talking about every subject under the sun just for history until the last five minutes of class. He always had all his history notes uh, at the library. Uh-huh. Uh, so you where you could study. But he said for the uh, this. For the other 50 minutes of the day, he would re-roll and give everybody funny names. And he said the funny thing is my mom, at this time, was going to college with her, with her mom. Both my mom, and, my mom and her mother uh, went to college together for the last two years. Uh, see, my, my grandmother was so young... Um, when she graduated from school, high school, that they sent off to college for a couple of years. The, the family did, then she got married. And then when she became a widow, uh, the one thing she decided to go back is to go back to school. 
Uh-huh. And so the last two years, my mom and my grandmother were, were classmates together. Isn't that a truth? And so... The talk of the campus. Yeah, so, so the professor knew that, knew that uh, my grandmother was named Mary Ellen. And he would always make up funny names, and it drove my grandmother nuts. She said, the professor said, hmm, Mariana from Tuna, Nebraska. Tuna, you have different crazy things. I mean, the professor would walk in, citing Casey at the bat, or walk in with a German hat, or some crazy thing. But he said, once he got down to business, those last five minutes of every class, that's when he really lectured and put in all the notes. But thank goodness you had all the notes in, in the library. That way you can prepare for, to take the class. Five minutes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's something wrong here. I'm not sure what it is, Robin, but um, there's something wrong when you get five minutes out of a class. How long is the class? It probably About an hour, you know. Forty-five minutes uh -huh. in a class. Yeah. Okay, and five minutes of teaching. Uh-huh. Forty minutes of entertaining, five minutes of teaching. Yes. But all five minutes were priceless. I guess. Yeah, I guess so. They were irreplaceable. Yes. Maybe that's a good term. <laughs> Seven one four. No, it could not be duplicated. That's I'm sorry. right. Go ahead. Seven one four five four five two oh seven one. Or well, in my economic class, my freshman year, my college professor taught us that we had a class of three hundred. And we had it at a movie theater. Well, he loved Q&A. So what he would do, he always brought candy, a b candy with him. And he was always looking for candy, looking for questions. And so if you ask a question, he would throw candy at you. So that's how he made sure he got interaction with the, with the student, with his student. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. Uh-huh. I guess, well, you know, motivation comes in different packages. Yeah, I guess so. <clears throat> so, tonight we are talking about money-saving exercises that people did during the Depression and World War II. And that prompts me to want to know, are there any shows out there you have listened to that had, um, that had activities in the show that relate to the subject tonight? I named off a couple of things about Fibber McGee and Molly. Fibber uh, um, walked places, Molly donned socks. Fibber mm -hmm. tried to press his own pants, and he was going to sandpaper the seat of the pants to take some of the shine out to make the pants last longer. So, are there any shows, any practices, anything you heard your family talk about, anything that they did, anything that you did, anything that you do today? that relates to what you learned as you were growing up and your parents were doing some money-cautious activities. 714-545-2071. All right, here's two more trivia questions for everybody to ponder about. Do I know the answer? No. When you pause, the answer is no. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Patricia just asked about Jefferson and Jackson Day. Okay, I think we should flip it on the other side. I want to know who was the first candidate to run for President of the United States as a Republican. And I also want to know who was the first 
Republican elected the President of the United States. 714-545-2071, child number. Hmm. Republican as a Republican. Yep. Not um, related to the older party. Not, not to the Whig or whatever, yeah. Um, Lincoln? Lincoln with Lincoln. Which, was the first Republican president. Correct. So that's in 1860. Right. So who was the first Republican? Who was the first to run as a, as a Republican? Uh huh. I don't know. Okay. And and I, I wouldn't even take a guess. That's a great question, though. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so happy I knew Lincoln. Oh, well, you're good. You're good. Listen, maybe there's somebody who can help me. Hello there, Carl. You're on with Patricia. I'll help you, Patricia. This is Ralph. Hello, Ralph. Help me. Help me. Go ahead. What did you... It, from the depression? Oh, oh yeah. Tell me. I know you've got lots of stories to tell me. Well, this is this is another this is a good one. Okay. We had goats and we had an old goat barn that was really in bad shape. But my father burned it down. Oh my. And then he sifted through the ashes and he took every nail that had been in the old barn and made sure it was straight and he built a new barn. Same nails. He, he reused the nails. Do you know about what year that was, about what time? Thirty-nine, forty. 40. So it, it would have been right smack in the middle of the Depression and reason, good reason, to reuse and make sure you made best use of everything that you had. I would say, you know, it was probably towards the end of it. But, uh, you know, he grew up uh, right through all that. And yeah. Did he pass anything on to you? Did you tell me you have a brother also? A brother? Yeah, yeah. my brother's passed on, but... Right, well, so you, there were two of you. Yeah. And what did he pass on to you that you tended to take into your lives and you might even use today? Well, one thing he did uh, when I was quite young, he took me and showed me the, the globe of the world. And he showed me by how to read the time zones. Mm-hmm. You know, the, um, oh. the how, how to uh, figure the longitude and latitude of different places and also the time zones. Wow. It was, it was an old, old globe, and it, it, all of the names were not the same of different places. Yeah. So he, he would tell me, this used to be so-and-so, and now it's called this. Like, uh... You, you talked a little bit uh, last week about when you played hooky and went fishing. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That's a good one. And your dad worked in the prison system? Did I, did I hear that correctly? Yeah, you worked at what was at the time known as a reformatory. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, they were going through a whole thing about re-educating and, and helping these young guys that were in there. Because it was only for... Uh, like under 21, I think. Uh-huh. And uh, I guess it worked to a certain degree, but, you know, the, the talent that some of these men had. Yeah. They, they could, uh, they made crystal radios that they could attach, uh, they would attach one wire to their bed spring and one wire to a ground, like a water pipe. Uh-huh. And uh, this thing was like...
like very miniaturized. They could stick it in their ears so it wouldn't be detected. Yeah. And it, the workmanship, you know, he brought a couple of them home, and the workmanship on them was fantastic. So this was entirely makeshift. I'm sorry? It was makeshift. They made it out of parts and pieces. This was not a traditional, they didn't go to arts and crafts school and build a crystal radio. They did it with bits and pieces of things they had available. Yeah. Well, they did have a machine shop and they had a, a big farm on there, you know, uh, huh? and the inmates worked at that. What did your father do? What, what uh, job did he have? Well, he was a guard. Wow. I'd originally been in the, the New Jersey uh, State Police. Uh -huh. And he was injured on a motorcycle. Ooh, ouch. Yeah, those darn things. So he finished out his career as a guard. Uh huh. He'd be in the service and, and everything else that he did, but that was primarily what he did. He's a very smart person. Very, um, he, I, I don't know what kind of an education he had, but he was well educated even if it were not in a formal setting. Well, I, I happen to know that he, he graduated from the third grade. That's as far as he ever went in school. Oh, my word. And uh, he had three or four patents of inventions that he created with the, with the government. What did he do? What did he make? Uh, it all had to do with firearms. He, he was very much into firearms. Uh-huh. And uh, he was also, when he, when he went back into the service for World War II, he was a gunnery instructor. My gosh, he had a, a, more than a lifetime of experiences. Yes, yes, he did. So, so he, was he stationed in, in, in the States at the gunnery? Uh, no, uh, World War II he spent in Oahu, in Hawaii. Really? Yep, and... Wow. Uh, they had a big, uh, a big um, airport there, or naval air station, and he used to tra train all the gunners. My goodness, what years, what years did he spend in the service? Well, I know he got out of the First World War in 1918, uh -huh. uh, and then he went back in 1941, and he stayed the duration. The whole thing, okay, right through to 45. Yeah, he and my brother both. My brother was uh, 13 years older than I. And they both joined the Navy together. Uh-huh. I remember you talked about that one night, and you and your mom kind of held on the fort while the two of them were in service. Yes, we did, yeah. Very unusual for your father. He was not... A 20-year-old going into the service and being drafted. How old was he when he went into World War II? I, I, I don't know. Uh, I bet he was pushing 40. But, you know, uh, in, in wartime, they, they made exceptions to the age limits, and they were looking for people with particular skills. Uh-huh. So, um... Okay, yeah, I, I remember normally drafted, or elected age 18 to 35, but you want to be a merchant uh, seaman, you could get into your 40s and 50s, I believe. You know, they, yeah, I would say a merchant marine, yeah. Yeah, they definitely made a exception to the rules. But, uh, yeah, he, he, um, he loved Hawaii. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised he never went back. He, he spent 
24 years straight in uh, in Hawaii. If he had an opportunity to move his family to Hawaii, would he have done it? I, I don't know that he did have the... I don't think the opportunity existed. If it were there, do you think he would have gone up? I, I think he would have liked to. But, you know, we never spoke of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, travel was funny. Travel was so restricted. Uh, uh, my mother and I went to... Uh, when he first went in the service, he was in Pensacola, Florida. So my mother and I went on a train from New Jersey down to Pensacola, Florida. And it was like, a, I don't know, it seemed forever when, you know, when you're a child. It seems like time passes so slowly. But it seemed like we were on the train for two nights. And the whole train, with the exception of a few civilians, was all, all military. It was all soldiers and sailors being sent to different places. And uh, we had to eat last after the servicemen ate. And as I recall, when we finally got uh, to stop someplace, my mother was buying sandwiches from a man off on the uh, platform. It just had a little, a little cart. He was selling sandwiches. We were going to eat. <laughs> we, we had very little chance at the dining car. I think it was worth it. 
$18.75. That sounds right, because you got four back for every three that you put in. And then you got $25 at maturity. How long did it take for that particular series to mature? My God, I'm trying to think. I think it was seven years. Uh, I, uh, I could be very wrong on that. Oh, no, that sounds reasonable. Yeah, I think it was seven years. Uh -huh. So that was... Interesting. Uh, it was, you know, it was quite a time. And uh, we spent more time listening to the news. You know, there was Walter Winchell and Gabriel Heater and Raymond Graham Swing and and some other uh, news people. Uh-huh. But... Uh, when my father was home, Walter Winchell, that was it. That was his. I anybody else. Walter was an interesting person. He held sway over media. We talked one time, Walden and I talked with uh, Barry Farber, who was one of the first people involved in what we know today as talk show radio. And they wound up talking with politicians, with men on the street, business people, um, everyone except personalities from Hollywood because Walter Winchell had threatened them. We <laughs> did have a lot of power, yes. He did, he did. Well, then maybe you can recall which star from Hollywood um, had a run-in with Walter Winchell. And he said, if you ever have her on on your show uh, to any of them. Um, mm. I don't remember. The whole world. It, it, uh, that, that one's got me. Yeah. yeah. Rachel was a powerful man. He 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 got paid a thousand dollars a minute. Oh my God. Can you imagine? Serious? Well, his radio broadcast for 15 minutes, he got paid a thousand dollars a minute. Wow. A week. Per week. With how many nights a week was he on? Once a week. So he got $15,000 a week. Just for his radio broadcast. And I have no idea what he got for his newspaper column. And, you know, that was syndicated. Uh-huh. And, you know, he, uh, he was an interesting guy. Um, I'll give you, give you a really interesting number. Um, in the 60s, around 64 or so, Frank Brzee produced... An Al Jolson album that Walter Winchell did a narration. Really? Yes. <laughs> well, Walter put it in a column. Guess how many copies they sold in one week? This is the sixties, everybody. Sixty-four. A mail order. The sixties. This is a mail order album too. Because it was in Walter Winchell's column. Um, I'll say twenty thousand. Ralph, you want to guess? I have no idea. Fifty thousand. Fifty thousand. So you can see why Frank and Walter produced a few record albums together. In, indeed. Yeah. So Walter Winchell had a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of cuspa and a lot of growl. He he and um he and Ben Ben Bernie uh, had a running feud together. Um, really? Yeah. The music the uh, the orchestra leader and. Uh, but one show was something else. Yeah, I had a very distinct uh, way of talking.
yes, and the reason why he did that, um... Uh, we woke Tony up. Uh, the reason why Winslow was able to clock to speaking 140 words a minute, yes. and re how he did it, <clears throat> he would drink quite a bit of uh, some water or something, oh, yes, yes. And, and refused to go to the bathroom. And I heard that the... <laughs> I don't do it! And he gave him this urgency. Yes, he gave him this urgency, and he was the one controlling that little uh, dots and dashes himself. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that's how Winslow got that little, good evening, Mr. 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 Yeah. Oh, it's just the same, Yeah. Little bit of urgency yes. there. Yeah. It sure worked for him. I, I don't think I'd like to try it, though. <laughs> Are there any studio stories that it might have backfired and he wound up in trouble? Uh, I bet. I bet. I bet. I don't know of any, though. Took an extra pair of to work with? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the only one I remember getting in trouble was a guy called Uncle Don. Oh, yeah. And, uh... Um, that from, and I've read in several places, Walden, you can help us, that's an urban legend that, this is what is written, that it's an urban legend that he did not say that off the air about the kids. He, I'll tell you what. But... I was a child. Did you hear it? And I listened to him every day. And when he said it, I went and asked my mother what that meant. Okay. Oh, my gosh. I didn't say it. They're covering up something because I heard it. Oh, my word. Okay. Well, we've got it from a horsey here. You've got the horse's mouth for us. I've read on the Internet that, that they say he never said that. Yeah. But he but did. He did. Oh, oh, my goodness. Are you going to play with us tonight? I still have your envelope here. I need... I don't know what blows your hair back here. Um, I've got a fair number of new goodies in here. Are you into history at all? Uh, you know, uh, like World War II and afterwards, yes. You are. But it's a, you know, uh, real yeah. history, 1880s. and. Okay, well, what I have um, that's new this week, I've got um, FDR's death train broadcasts where at different stops along the way when his, um, it wasn't a cortege, his body was on the train. And um, there are recordings of the, the various, broadcasts that were made at the different train stops. Um, yeah, you know, I think I remember some of that. Do you? It, not, not in any detail, but yeah, that, they, that was a big thing. It, it was a big thing, and it's quite a good set of recordings. The next thing I got in was a set of World War II public service announcements when they were encouraging purchase of war bonds or join the wax, um, and, and it's a, a staggering collection. Uh, so I'm, I'm really delighted that I got that. I've got a whole new set of World War II songs and music. Thank you to Harwood, uh, who calls in from North Carolina. He asked for that, and I found a really good set. We've got the Andrew Sisters and Johnny Mercer, Glenn Miller, Crosby, hey. Fats Waller. I love those people. You love those people? Oh, 
yeah. Um, um, they're all singing in the World War II era. Are you interested? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, I, I, you know, that was great. I remember them. In World War II. Andrews, I think everybody remembered the Andrews sisters. I think so. People are asking for the Andrews sisters periodically. Um, so it, it's kind of fun to be able to say, yes, I can do that. So, okay, well, the music you've got uh, for for people who are listening in the history department, the last thing that I picked up were speeches by Harry Truman, and that relates to the question I asked Walden earlier tonight, what is Jefferson Jackson Day? One of the speeches is a Jefferson Jackson Day dinner speech, and um, so I, I, it, it's, a, it's a really nice group of new things that I've got in the history department. So, World War II songs and music you shall have. Oh, that would be nice. Yeah, see, I just knew I had something that would that would twirl your turban. Are you going to make me answer a question? Or? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to answer about the doggy. <laughs> you know, that, that's good, a, a good reminder. Um, how about... The doggy question, who did the dog named Sandy belong to? That was Orphan Annie. That's oh, right. Orphan Annie. You got it. Okay, I can cross that one off. <laughs> this is good. My wife is calling out from the bedroom. It was Orphan Annie. <laughs> it was Orphan Annie. Hi, Tony. How you doing? I emailed to you, Ralph, two Tailspin Tommy shows. Yeah, I got them. Thank you. You're very welcome, but those are the only two that were out there. So I can probably fit something extra on a CD here for you because you really didn't get any to Tailspin Tommies. You know, I, I, uh, Tailspin Tommy originally was a movie. I didn't know that. I never even heard the name before. It was a motion picture. Uh-huh. And uh, I can barely remember it. But, you know, that was... I was very young at that point. Uh-huh. Well, Not anymore. But. <laughs> None of us is, is anymore. Um, I had never heard the the words Tailspin Tommy. I did not know that was a show. I didn't know it existed. Now you're telling me there was even a movie. I think it originated as a movie and then, and then spun off to, to radio uh, later on. And, and it... Usually, it's the other way around, so this was an unusual sequence. Hmm. If, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure that's what had happened. Interesting. Well, it did happen occasionally um, in, in that direction, but by today's standards, it's usually the... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ever so interesting. Well, um, is Tony in the market for anything? Should I tuck something in there for Tony? You have... She's listening in the bedroom. So she'll probably get it in a delayed form. Okay. She'll call out if she has anything. <laughs> <laughs> she has something. Um, well, I'll read as long as I've got you on the phone and I've got Tony in the background there. I will give the rest of the items that I have collected over the last week or two. Uh, we've got Eddie Cantor. You asked for Eddie Cantor? Yes. Did you get Eddie Cantor? I believe so, yes. Okay, I, I believe I sent it to you. That's uh, It was yes. Tailspin Tommy that was giving me the tailspin here. Okay, so we've got Eddie Cantor in the files now. I've got, in broadcast history, I've got a recording of NBC's first 50 years, 
and CBS's first 50 years. So that's a good snapshot of broadcast history. Um, from last week, we have Chicken Man and Tooth Fairy. I think these are guy things. <laughs> and Chicken Man and Tooth Fairy. Chicken Man and Tooth Fairy, yes. Hmm. I, was this... Tell you with Chicken Man? Different shows, or was this all... that they were sent out to radio stations to play. Right, and they were in sequence. It was a serial. Both of them were serials, and they had different seasons of these things. And they're actually quite funny. It's a different kind of humor, but they're actually quite funny. The guy plays a chicken in <laughs> in a baseball setting. He's the, the chicken mascot. And as a tooth fairy, he goes around and assumes responsibility as the tooth fairy to take the pressure off parents, and uh, he works with a dentist. So um, it's, it's kind of a different kind of humor. And I found something. Walden, this is going to make your teeth tingle. I found Hal Perry's recordings of stories, children's stories. He's reading children's stories. Oh, very nice. Hmm? Very nice. That's what he gave out as a, um, his Christmas. There was Christmas albums. In 1945, where he read the different uh, fairy tales. Fairy tales. Now, he was the original Gildersleeve? Yep, he was the original Gildersleeve from 41 yeah, to yeah, 1950. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, he came out of Fibber McGee and Molly, didn't he? Yep, that's that, the guy. That was radio's first spinoff show. He did. He spun off as Gildersleeve from Fibber McGee and Molly. Now, this was in 1946. I have a Time uh, magazine article from 1946 okay. about the recording that he made. Now, I've only got two of the four shows that he recorded. Okay. I've got Cinderella and Snow White and Red Rose, which is, you know, one, one story. Right. White and Red Rose is the, is the title of it. So I thought that was kind of a bonanza. Yeah, it's very to, good. To locate that one. And I've got a big set of Basil Rathbone recordings, narrations of Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book and Silas Marner and the Oliver Twist and A Christmas Carol. I mean, it's a staggering collection and all read by Basil Rathbone, whom I think is really cool. He's got a great voice, isn't he? A wonderful voice, and it's really well suited to the kinds of readings that he's doing. So those are kind of unusual things that I picked up in the last week or two. You've been busy. Say what? You have been busy. I have been a little busy bunny. Yes, I have been. Uh, and some of these I come across by accident. I'll be out looking for something, and there's a common word in a search. And instead of, yeah. in addition to what I'm looking for, something else will pop up. So that's how I have come across a couple of these things. Some of them I've gone out looking for, but... But a couple of these popped up on their own in the middle of something else. I mean, I don't know how you would get um, Oliver Twist with the Tooth Fairy. <laughs> I don't think those came up together. I don't know, Mike. So, but it's, it's kind of an interesting collection. So those are newbies for this week. We've got a whole million squillion other shows, but those are the new ones for this week. And World War II songs is one of them, so I'm glad that's something you'll enjoy. Did Tony come up with anything? She hasn't spoken out, but she came out here 
and looked at me and grabbed her book went back in the bedroom, so. Okay, well. <laughs> she woke her up. I'm sure she heard me. <laughs> okay, well, when, when you think of something, Tony, give me an email, and I will include it in the envelope. Oh, great. Because I owe you a second show here. <laughs> Patricia, I had a question. Uh, a few weeks ago, we spoke about the, uh, the discs that you send me are MP3s. Uh-huh. And that they wouldn't play in my car's uh, CD player. Right. And you were telling me about some unit or some rig. That is correct. It's a little... Um, oh, it somehow it's a zip drive. Yeah, it is. And it, it comes with, uh, or you use, the little thumb drives. Yes. Come with one, or four, one, two, four, um, six, eight, and 16 uh, gigabytes on them. And it's a little unit that snaps into the cigarette lighter in the car. Yeah. You load the little thummy, the, the um, little thumb drive. Yes. Load that directly from your computer. You load the MP3s onto this. <laughs> stuff it in the little unit that's in your car, and it plays through your radio. You set this, I think it's it. Hey, I got all I tried to find one, and nobody... You found one? No one seems to know what I'm talking about. What do you call this thing? I don't know. I'll find one on the internet and link to you, okay? That would be great. Okay. I just, so I went through this whole explanation and you already knew what I was You had told me a couple of weeks back or a month. I remember. And uh, I went to a couple of electronic places and they kind of looked like, I mean, like they were dumbfounded.
Hold our buddy Ralph. And you can give us a call too at 714-545-2071. Hooray. I have a question for you. Good. Uh, and then and then I have a whole list of what I called September happenings. And I have a little little drop here I'm gonna, I want to feature for tomorrow night. Get to wet people's appetite too. So. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Okay, I'm looking for my. Let me play something. This is for a buddy Ken. Huh? And tomorrow, one thing I'm gonna feature is a two-hour interview with the person here. Maybe some of you might. John, recognize, one of your longest and most recognize this this little piece of 1970s uh, music from. Uh, from the country field back in those days, and we're going to feature a two-hour interview. It's by far the hardest thing I've ever done to be so in love with you so John, I guess the logical place to begin is at the beginning. So tell us about your childhood. You grew up as an Air Force brat, if you'll pardon the expression. Air Force brat is exactly the right term. And uh, the moving around and everything is, is a very real fact of my, of my growing up. We lived in a lot of different places. My father being transferred a great deal. I didn't really have the life of uh, a, lot, a lot of people think of, of uh, growing up. And there we go. Did I lose Patricia? I bet I did. We'll put a little bit here. Um, I've often felt like I never really had a home. A home is a lot more to me than the place that you live with your family. And my father was uh, was raised on a farm in Oklahoma, 
And we spend a lot of time whenever in the Air Force, uh, you always have a 30-day leave, 30-day vacation each year. And we would go back to Oklahoma and spend some time in Tulsa with my mom's parents and some time uh, in, in Corn and Cloud Chief, Oklahoma, which is the western part of the state, with my dad's family. And that time was spent very much out of doors, running with the kids, going to fetch the cattle or uh, riding on the back of the tractor, uh, picking cotton, chopping cotton, uh, cutting wheat. And, and we're going to feature that two-hour interview with John Denver tomorrow night. John Denver was such a neat person, yeah. just as a person. And the, the, the tragic way he died is just heartbreaking. Uh-huh. It's so nice to hear his voice. Yep. Going to be a good interview. Thank you for playing that. So that'd be for our buddy Ken, who I know is our resident John Denver fan. And I don't think I don't think all of us who grew up in the seventies remember that music, you know, a part of our life in a lot of ways. So it it never went away. No. It's still popular, the albums are still selling. There are songs I've never heard before that come up. Amazing. I've got a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> I have some September happenings, and there are some fun things on there. Can I tell you a couple of them, and then maybe after a show, I, we can go through some more? Sure. And I've got another clip to play, too, but you go go ahead with oh, your stuff. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Play. No, 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 no. I want you to do your stuff first. Okay. On September 28th, 1820. This is, we're into the 1800s. There's a lot of really good history. Are you ready for this one? I'm ready. It says, to prove that a tomato is not poisonous, Colonel Robert Gibbon Johnson eats one in public in Salem, Massachusetts. Very good. The first tomato that was ever eaten in public. And that's been one of my questions all along. Who was the person who discovered that the virus of a tomato plant are poisonous and will kill you, but the tomato was fine. I bet he did not live to tell us. The person who discovered the vine was poisonous. Yes, I bet that wasn't able to tell us. Right, that only takes one experiment. (laughs) (laughs) I only need to do that one time. Okay, September 28, 1941. Ted Williams ended the season in 1941 with a 400 batting average. Correct, he did. And he 400. Went 400. And then he had a double hero that day. He refused to sit down. He went 6 for 8 and wound up batting 406. Amazing. Just amazing. Can you, I mean, I just can't imagine something. I, I have looked at the statistic at different times and you walk past the television and you see somebody standing up there and say, oh, boy, he's got a 285 batting average. And I think, there ain't no Ted Williams. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Not any Ted Williams. No. Okay, here's another one. September 27th, the first production Model T was built at the Ford plant in Detroit. Ah. We've got really good stuff in September. It was also, September 8th was, uh, in 1900, September 8th, 1900, was the Galveston, Texas hurricane that hit and killed approximately 8,000 people, which is staggering, just staggering. Um, When when you think it was more than 100 years ago, and the population 100 years ago was not close to what it is today, and still 8,000 people died. Hoover Dam was dedicated on September 30th in, in 19... 
1787, delegates to the Constitutional Congress, our convention, adopted the Constitution. It was written and adopted in one year. Very nice. Now, you think of that in terms of today's government. We would still be working on the first sentence after a year. Uh-huh. Especially after 1,000 pages. Um, yep. Amazing. Yep. And on September 25th, 1789, this is two years after the Constitution, the Bill of Rights was submitted to the states by Congress. I mean, all of this happened in a, in a period of three years. It was just extraordinary. Just extraordinary. September 11th and 1850, P.T. Barnum, I'm going to ask you this. There's a question in here. Mm -hmm. P.T. Barnum, the obviously the entrepreneur, introduced the Swedish nightingale, Jenny Lind, yep. to an American audience of 6,000. It was her debut at Castle Garden, a converted fort on Manhattan Island. I never heard of that, Castle Garden. Mm. Um, she was a rising success. He charged how much per ticket? 6,000 in the audience. What year? 1850. 50 cents a piece. Should we toss this out as a question? What do? How much did P.T. Barnum charge in 1850 when he introduced what, he, what was known as, or who was known as, the Swedish Nightingale, Jenny Lind, to American audience of 6,000 people in Manhattan, New York? 1935, what famous singer got his start on radio? Bow show for the whole Bogan Four. Oh my goodness! Yeah, he was from Hoboken too. Uh huh. Hoboken, New Jersey. Thanks so much. I was thinking of him in terms of the uh, dramatic—not not dramatic, but the acting performance right. that he did on radio. Not thinking of him as a singer on radio. Yeah. That's really interesting. What happened to the other three singers? They went, uh, I, some of them went, went had, their dad ran an ice cream parlor, so they went, probably went back to work, scoop ice creams, I guess. Uh, nothing ever happened to them. How sad. Yep. How neat that we got Frank Sinatra out of this. That's true. That's true. Well, I think, if it's okay with you, if we play a show now, when we come back, I will attack you with a second set of questions. Terrific. What do you think? Well, can I play one little clip? Oh, gosh. I'm sorry. I translate that. Sure. Sure. This is another thing we're going to play for tomorrow night. We have a series of these uh, that just newly got transferred by Jerry Hindegas, and I'm going to feature some of these on the Sunday night show. Sound, the voices, the music, and the speeches. 
It lets us hear and feel and almost taste what life was like not so long ago. And, of course, it takes two of us to drive and navigate and point out the landmarks to you. It, it's really a forehand job. <laughs> and the other pair of hands and the single voice belong to Bob Maxwell. And in case you didn't recognize that first voice, he's Gary Moore. Well, Gary, do you have our itinerary, Gary? Well, let me give you a few clues as to where we're heading. Do you remember when this song was first seen on the record charts? Was it the same year this one came out? I like you very much. Indeed it was, but it was also a year in which many serious words were spoken. Give us the tools and we will finish the job. Sounds like the war years. Okay, let's put an end to the suspense. Yesterday. And we're going to start tomorrow night with a series called The Mighty Memory Mobile, hosted by Gary Moore. And if it, he, the, he did it in 1976-77, it was syndicated and especially concentrated on a, a year, and they traced the year with uh, quotes and a little bit of music, and a lot of stories that Gary Moore told, especially people he knew, relating to each year. Wow. So, that, so that'd be another little feature we're going to add to the Sunday Night lineup. We are so fortunate to have such rich examples still with us. Yep. Through recordings and people who are associated with the shows. Yeah. Uh, we are just so lucky to yeah. have this. We are. So lucky to have this. Uh, I can't say- recall what I did to you during the week. Can we play the potted plant show first? Is that possible? What date? Is that, that's the one from... Oh, sorry, that's the April 29th, 1952. And it's ready to do that. You it better. is? Yep. Oh, excellent. Because this is our Listen Hard show. All right. Okay. It is the Potted Plant and Pet Show from April 29th, 1952. A combination. We've got a phone call. Oh, well. I guess not. Another one. Fibber <laughs> um, is going to enter his geranium in the Whistle Vista Annual. This is an annual Potted Plant and Pet Show. Along the way, something happens, of course, and um, as can be expected, only when Silver gets his hands on something, so it didn't quite work out that way. But this is our Listen Hard show, because I have three questions. When the show is over, I'll have three questions, all of them about the show. The questions relate to the show. And all I need is one correct answer. I will ask three questions. All I need is one correct answer, and you will have in your mailbox a CD with your favorite shows. So this is the Potted Plant and Pet Show, Fibber McGee and Molly, from April 29th, 1952. The Pet Show Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. First of Operators Health, Pet Milk presents Fibber McGee and Molly with Bill Thompson, Gail Gordon, Arthur Q. Bryan, Dick Legrand, and me, Harlow Wilcox. The show is written by Phil Leslie and Keith Fowler and directed by Max Hutto with music by the Kingsman and Billy Mills Orchestra. Some foods just naturally go together, like bread and butter, ham and eggs, and coffee and pet milk. 
Lots and lots of folks who used to take cream in their coffee now use pet evaporated milk. Not just because pet milk costs so much less, but because it makes coffee taste so good. Gives coffee the creamy color and mellow, satisfying flavor that coffee drinkers love. Let me tell you why pet milk is so ripe for coffee. The pet milk people take good, sweet country milk and remove more than half the water by evaporation. The result is a concentrated milk, which makes coffee taste better. And think of it, for the same amount of money you'd spend for coffee cream, you get more than twice... So, for extra enjoyment, for extra economy, in your coffee, use pet brand evaporated milk. Get several cans at your grocer's tomorrow. Tomorrow will be the opening day of Wistful Vista's annual Potted Plant and Pet Show. In the Potted Plant Division will be rare begonias, gorgeous lilies, exotic orchids, and a small, tired geranium. <laughs> Entered by Mr. McGee of Fibber McGee and Molly. And that's it right there in the corner of the flower bed, Molly. My own little hand-raised salmon-colored geranium. Look at it. Ain't it a beauty? That poor little wilted-looking chewed-up thing sticking up there through the crabgrass? That's it. That's the little geranium that's going to cop top prize tomorrow. Oh, you happy optimist. <laughs> you betcha. I've planted plenty of plants in my day, but I can say one thing about that plant that I never could say about any other plant I ever planted. What's that? It lives. <laughs> yes, if that's the geranium's idea of living. <laughs> Look at it. Honestly, though, dearie, what kind of an award do you expect to win with that sad little batch of bug bait? Huh? <laughs> A special vote of thanks from the neighborhood grasshoppers, could be? Oh, well. I'll admit the grasshoppers have chewed half the leaves off it, and I'll admit it ain't very big, but I'm going to take care of that. I got a terrific idea today. Uh-oh. Break it to me gently. Look, there's all kinds of stuff on the market to make plants grow, right? Right. And there's all kinds of stuff to kill bugs, right? Right. So if you mix them all together, you'll get a concoction that'll make plants grow as big as trees and kill every bug from a boll weevil to a wood beetle. Right? Wrong. <laughs> but I'm sure that won't keep you from trying it, right? Right. Wait to see what I got on the back porch. I bought myself 16 kinds of plant food and 12 different types of bug killer. Going to mix them all together, add a few special touches of my own, and pour the whole mess on my little geranium. You really think that will help it? Help it? Tootsie, when that mighty mixture of mine starts to work, that geranium will grow faster than a welt on a beekeeper. <laughs> I'll bring the stuff out here right now and start mixing it on account. Hello there, kid! Well, hello, Mr. Oldtimer. Hi. Start mixing what, Johnny? What you gonna mix? Oh. I'll take one with plenty of ice because warm daylight... No, 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 no. <laughs> I was just gonna mix up some bug killer, Oldtimer. Oh, skip it. <laughs> I just...